Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 149 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Cheryl's Rocks Jocelyn. She's the host of the Canyons Are Calling podcast. She's a canyoneer and she works at Imlay Canyon Gear. Her podcast focuses on canyoneers' adventures, beta, tips, tactics, gear, and even some misadventure. My favorite episode on the podcast is her recent one with Scott Sweeney, who's a Death Valley First Descent legend. The man is prolific, and he's been doing adventure well into um, his age, and I think it's a beautiful thing. And I aspire to be like Cheryl's and Scott. You can find her podcast on all podcast platforms. Um, and you can find links to that in the show notes or uh, becominghumanpodcast.com. In this episode, Cheryl's teaches us about canyoneering and how it has influenced her life. Canyoneering is a fascinating sport. Um, Cheryl's is based out of the... It's like Southern Utah. And it's a, I went there for the first time this year and it is a unique environment and it lends itself to like these dry canyons or mostly dry canyons. The constraints of travel, like going from point A to point B, for instance, um, you get some very unique experiences and challenges by constraining yourself to these canyons. And these canyons present a variety of obstacles to get um, through and around. And Cheryl's is just enamored with them. And she, you can tell that she's really passionate about canyoneering. So it was great to be able to talk to her. You can find links to videos of the canyons discussed on this episode in the show notes or on becominghumanpodcast.com. You can also find the links to the Canyons Are Calling podcast, Imlay Canyon Gear, and her Instagram for the podcast there as well. And I'm going to, um, at the end of the episode, I'm going to play you out uh, with a song by Aesop Rock and Homeboy Sandman called Ask Anyone. I grew up in central Utah and we um, would camp as a family quite often. We'd go on like big family, extended family camp trips or just private little camp trips with my brothers and sisters. And so it was outdoors a lot as a kid. And then after high school. Well, when you um, guys were kids uh, and you guys would go on like camping trips and stuff like that what was the theme of that did you guys do like adventurous things or was it usually hanging out around the campsite throughout the day uh sometimes we would go fishing and but mostly it was just like set up camp we would go to super primitive campgrounds 
camp spots. I actually didn't camp in a campground until I was an adult and moved to South Dakota. Whoa. Yeah, I think it was 22 or 23. It was crazy. Um, and it was a KOA and I was like, why do people do this? This sucks. <laughs> is that, is that because, uh, do you think that some of that has to do with being in Utah at the time, given how like remote and, um, yeah, remote it is? Yeah. And my dad was just, um, he and his friends just like to be outside and camping a lot. So oh, that's cool. And like, he was into hunting. He never would take me hunting cause I was a girl, I guess, but we did go fishing and then we got to go camping a lot. And then, so when we were camping, um, the kids would just all go in and explore while parents were, you know, drinking beers and hanging out by the fire or whatever. <laughs> That's how it was like for me when I was growing up too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but definitely exposed me to the outdoors and got a love for nature very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right out of high school, I moved around a little bit. I lived in Seattle for a little while and Ooh. then Salt Lake and then South Dakota. South Dakota? That... What brought you out to South Dakota? Um, I fell in love with a guy. And oh. then when I fell out of love, I moved back to Utah. You didn't like the, the landscape of South Dakota? <laughs> Unfortunately, so I was in Mitchell, South Dakota. And for those of you who don't know Mitchell, South Dakota, it's kind of an hour west of Sioux Falls. Mm-hmm. So it's in the flatlands. Oh, that's what all of South Dakota was. <laughs> Um, you have the Badlands in like by Rapid City mm-hmm. and like Sturgis and um those places and that's kind of hilly and really pretty. Oh, okay. But I was like 350 miles away from that. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, and it was really flat and there were like tornadoes in the summertime. Oh, so really we, scary without all the fun. Like <laughs> my first snowstorm, we got 24 inches of sto- snow overnight. Whoa, that is wild. Insane. I thought that I, like growing up in Southern Utah, I thought that I knew what snow and winter was about, but no. (laughs) 24 inches overnight, it was horrible. And then we get ice storms too. Whoa, One time we got two inches of ice and then 10 inches of snow and then like 70 to 90 mile hour winds. Oh my gosh. It blew trees down. It blew. It was insane. You can't even go have fun in that. You're like shuttering your doors. Yeah. You can't go outside in the wintertime. We were without power for 10 days. Whoa. Wow. Like luckily at the time we were into real estate investing, we had a rental property that was vacant so Mm -hmm. we could stay warm. But anyway, I left South Dakota to come back to Southern Utah. Mm-hmm. Because I knew another number one, St. George had no snow, and Zion was close by. It, did Zion mean something to you at the time? Um, as a kid, we would go to Zion a lot. It's um, striking the there, like in terms yeah. of like adventurous things, and um, you could even get some exposure just like you know a few minutes right off of the the, the road. Like I've never mm-hmm. seen. I'm not really very well traveled yet. Uh, so I'm not used to seeing that, like that kind of like grandeur or very, cause when you look at the whole landscape, it like, it really does, you know, make you stop for a moment and you don't even have to be a nerd about like landscape. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. really, and then even when you like, you could park, you know, and you go like, especially on like the East side and there's like all that slick rock and stuff. It's like, 
you could, you know, find something that's a, just get your heart rate going a little bit. That's just nice. Yeah. The East side is my favorite. And like, I mean, oh, I've really? driven through hundreds of times and I still get blown away. Like it wow. still just makes me happy to drive through. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Um, so yeah, I knew like as a kid, we went there, you know, quite a bit as a family and, and so I just knew that the Red Rocks were cool and just something drew me to Zion. And so um, I was able to transfer with my job back to St. George and have a restart there. And that's where I met a friend who got me into climbing a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so um, climbing for me was kind of cool, but I have arthritis in my hands. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of painful and you just go up like 30 feet and then do it again and do it again. And it's like the same view all day and it's painful and whatever. And so he had an opportunity to go through a canyon in Zion called Spry Canyon. Mm -hmm. And he invited me along and it blew my mind. Like the things that we saw after each turn of the canyon or after each rappel, I want to say there's like 10 rappels in Spry. Mm -hmm. Um, And the challenges that we faced, we did some down climbing that I had never done before, like some stemming where you're like hands are on one side of the wall and your feet are on the other side of the wall. And just like, yeah. Um, going across the canyon for a little bit and, you know, things I had never seen or experienced and it just blew my mind. Was, um, client was when you got into climbing and then getting into canyoneering, were these like your first, uh, first kind of like recreations or or hobbies that you're picking up? You know, um, I had done some hiking and some, um, backpacking, you know, as a, well, also in South Dakota, um, we did motocross. Oh yeah, that, <laughs> that would be fun when it's that was like the only thing to do. When yeah. you go real fast. <laughs> yeah, so um, mm-hmm. but yeah, hiking and yeah. and then a little backpacking, um, but then yeah. Did it light? It's did like the hiking and the backpacking light you up like canyoneering did? No. No. <laughs> no. I mean, it does a little bit. I mm-hmm. do. You know, I, I do thrive when I'm outside, but yeah. canyoneering, there's something about just going into those arteries in the earth where it takes the ropes to get there. And, you know, you have to overcome your fear in order to get to these places. And every time you walk up to a rappel, you get that, mm-hmm. you know, um, anxious feeling in your stomach <laughs> and and go through that all over again. And it's just experiencing these amazing places is addicting. Yeah. For it, sure. It really is. And like when you, when you were going through your first time, did you, if you could remember, what was it like for the kinds of repels? Was that at the time something that you would have been really excited about or did it create a lot of like anxiety and intimidation? I was really excited about it. They right. created a monster when they got me in there. <laughs> it was For me, it was way more fun to repel and go down things than it was to climb. Oh, really? So I really I've only been climbing maybe a handful of times in 10 years since I started canyoneering. Wow. I gave my ropes to my daughter. I gave my shoes <laughs> to her. Like I was like, I don't need them. Like, yeah. You'll use them. Enjoy. Um, but I'm That's into canyoneering. Yeah, that's so cool. And that was like, was that one of the, is that a, have you had something like that before? Like anything in your life that you like felt that like click for you like that? You just like really enjoyed it. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, other than like heroin and cocaine, probably not. (laughs) And so after giving those up in 1999, 90, 98. Oh, really? Yeah. I overdosed on October 2nd, 98. Oh, no way. What? Could you tell me about that? After that, (laughs) (laughs) this is my addiction. That's wild. Yeah. See, I, I've had, so like, just from my background, um, I grew up with, you know, I used variety of drugs in my youth and like, and I would, and I'd overdose and, um, I overdosed once and got, you know, alcohol poisoning and stuff. And that was like, for me, it was the experience. If anyone were to go climbing and you were to see the hardest route at the crag, and then, you know, they're like, oh, that looks really hard. And then someone in the group were like, I can go up there, I bet. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. And then whatever you can imagine is going on in that person's mind. That's why I overdosed. And, like, <laughs> I didn't – because I didn't re- – it was like my – I was trying to prove myself to these, like, 20-something-year-olds when I was 11. And, oh, wow. and it was – yeah, they were like – but they weren't ushering me on or anything. They looked at me like, you look at me. And they're like, what? And that's not a good idea. And I'm like, wow. But I found as I got out the other side of that and I was like, well, this is kind of odd. You get to like, you have a lot of fun. And then the next day, really thinking about like alcohol, but like the next day, you know, you're hungover and you don't feel good. I don't want to do that. Like I want to figure out something a little more sustainable and more exciting, you know? And and so I like spent all this time searching for that and really understanding like to me what like um, uh, habitual uses, addiction and, and, and how I like develop vices and, you know, um, and whether or not, even if I get rid of drugs, how other vices would crop up and how I had to learn to like develop a relationship with myself and my impulses. Um, mm-hmm. But then I like, I have my family members, my brother and my sister, I mean, they're doing a lot better now, but they're in their like almost, you know, thirties or almost thirties. And, um, they've struggled with drug addiction throughout their lives, you know, and I've never, I overdosed, but I wasn't like, I wasn't obsessed with, with using anything. Like when I was a kid, I'd use, the only thing it was is I'd use a lot of pot and I'd smoke a lot of cigarettes and drink a lot of coffee. Cause like, logically <laughs> I could be like, Hey, I could use all these things. These aren't going to kill me, you know, in the moment. But like, these will feel good, you know? So what I was like is like, I don't, I don't know if, you know, my wiring's a little different than my siblings. Cause I'd have a lot of grief over that because it didn't mm-hmm. take a lot to like not get addicted to the hard stuff, but like develop bad habits with the, the moderate stuff um, was yeah. that I just had a lot easier time doing a cost benefit analysis because what I look at is when I go into climbing is that you have risk reward all the time. And when you go into canyoneering and running as well, and I'm always doing a risk reward analysis to like, is the thing that I want worth the effort and the consequences that could happen from going into the experience? And like, because I got into these experiences, especially one that like risks your life, you know, canyoneering is similar to where you have to do things to keep yourself safe in these unsafe environments. Um, It caused me a lot of thinking about that. Because sometimes you realize that you might act without the, your best interest in mind without you even knowing it. You might be doing dumb things that you're committing to a danger that you don't really understand and putting yourself and everyone else at risk. And like 
where at in life do you get the opportunity to examine all of these characteristics about yourself other than doing something crazy as hell? Like, you know, right. climbing or canyoneering, something that doesn't mean anything, but is like super intense. And right. <laughs> so like, um, definitely a better way to risk your life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's where I was like, I would even look at it in terms of like, you know, these things that I like to do is even when I was all hoity toity and I'm like, you know, look at what I'm doing. And then my ego got all big. I was like, wait, no, there is some like addictive <laughs> things that I do here. <laughs> and it like feels really like I've completely blown off like a year or two of like work just so I can go and like toil away in a climbing gym and chasing all my, my things. And, you know, and a lot of that's just like a kid at play. And I realized the shortcomings of some of those things and it's caused me to relate with my siblings a lot better. Um, yeah. but yeah sorry it was a little rambly <laughs> no it's all good <laughs> so, did you, you know, i mean we all get to our own bottom right and mm-hmm. so it takes whatever it takes like for me my daughter was um 10 months old i almost died her dad was on our way to prison and what was she gonna do if one of us wasn't around right mm-hmm. and so lucky for me i went to a pretty good rehab um, one of my experiences at rehab when we were talking about rock climbing, um, we got to go to a rock climbing gym. It was my oh. first experience ever rock climbing. And we went to a rock climbing gym, indoor gym in Provo. And, um, so they just gave us our harnesses and hooked us up and they were like, Hey, there's the wall. <laughs> go for it. Right. Yeah. And they're watching us and they're, and uh, you know, analyzing us. And I look at this wall and there's this one wall that like goes up a little bit and then it goes like hangs upside you know like vertical oh, like a roof yeah diagonal, oh. right diagonal and i'm like i'm going for that one that looks badass yeah so you know i start climbing it and of course they can't do it i've never fucking climbed anything <laughs> and so you know and then i like try a couple of other routes and other routes and i finally get one that i can do and whatever and so then they get back to the rehab and they analyze the whole day right mm-hmm. And they're like, your personality is you just like, go for it. You know, like hardcore hundred percent. Like some people are more intimidated and they start at beginner level, but no, I just jump all in. And that's how I feel like it was with canyoneering. You know, like Mm -hmm. I did this, you know, it was a mid-level canyon in Zion, not a super beginner canyon, but it was a full day and got into just some really badass stuff and um I got in with a really good crew that taught me some really good things right away from the beginning that community is so important right "Mm -hmm." it definitely is and the skills that you learn um but yeah I mean just overcoming like one addiction and it had been you know many years later but just diving 100% into something else is what you got to do just to live your life and be happy yeah, that's what I wondered was like, you know, with the things that I even saw with my my sister, she'd always talk about like, you know, when she went to prison because she she beat up this like uh, or she pretend to, to want to be a prostitute and to like have. Yeah. And to hook up with these pimps or whatever. And they're selling meth. And then they came over and she was really just lying to them and she beat them up. And then she stole all their meth and then she stole their money. And then she called the police on them because she was a rival meth dealer. Um, And I'm just like, Oh my God. And all I could think is, is like, this shit is 
this is this is fucking crazy and then like getting to know her she's like gone through all these recovery things she's like like if you get into a, a breakup right you're like who is she i'm gonna kick her ass and i'm just like oh my god like we just like all these like trauma all this thing we just need to unpack all these but then i like reframe mm-hmm. it and you know if you're an entrepreneur if you're a rock there's a way to like these things kind of have a way of softening you up a little bit at least that's my yeah. hope and i always think like you know who, the characteristics that you are they might be misplaced but it seems like these outdoor or really recreation you know art and you know, running and climbing and um canyoneering have a way of like mapping those things onto different stuff because like yeah. i get really euphoric obviously from running but from like climbing i get a different sense of you euph- i guess euphoria um and things like like it feels very very visceral and in my body and intense like like drugs in a lot of ways but different kinds of sensations it's definitely it's a way better high a way more healthy high for sure and i mean you definitely can get that euphoric feeling i agree and like the the equation's nice too because the more you do it then the more people want to spend time with you like more mm-hmm. people want to spend time with you you get good at it people look up to you for information you exchange like it it has all this mm-hmm. stuff encoded inside of it just by the nature of it you know yep so i find a little bit more of my soul every time i'm out there it's <laughs> awesome so when you first started canyon, so your first time out canyoneering like that, you just dove headfirst into it and you're completely in love. The mm-hmm. uh, What happened after that first canyoneer or that first canyoneering trip? Did you just take off and start doing a bunch of other ones? Yeah, I started just researching what other canyons were around and what else we could do in the area and started planning trips with my friends. And that we had this um, core group of, I'm going to say like five guys that I went with at first and then it kind of grew to maybe like 10. We had this Z crew, we called it. Um, but we would just do all these canyons in the Zion area. And I remember my first time, um, we were like, we want to do a canyon that we don't need permits for. And at that time you didn't need permits for Inglestead. And so it was like between Birch Hollow and Inglestead. And I don't know if you know these canyons in the Zion area. But um, the difference basically is Birch Hollow has 120 foot rappel is the longest rappel. And there's, I think, 10 to 12 rappels in that one. And then Order or Inglestead has a 300 foot rappel just Mm. to get into the canyon. And then after that, all of the rappels are like 120 feet. Wow. So me always going, you know, full force <laughs> I choose the 300 foot repel you know let's do Inglestead and so my first, longest repel before that was 180 feet and so I get up to that 300 foot drop and it looks intense it, I'm just like oh my god like who chose this right when you're in that when you're on that edge what, what kind of feelings do you do you feel um i mean there's so many butterflies in your stomach and you're just so nervous (laughs) and but also i mean when you get on rope it's like there's so much force below you on 300 feet that you almost have to like it's like a fireman belay is like pulling down on you whoa and you kind of have to push the rope through your belay device, mm-hmm. your repel device. Yeah, feed it through. Like, 
I kind of assumed like I'm going to hook up and just free fall down uh-huh. and just be done, you know, and just like haul ass down this. But that wasn't really the case. And so you kind of had to feed it through for the first like maybe 80 feet. Mm-hmm. But then you start going like pretty smoothly. But then you, when you get toward the bottom of that 300 feet, you're going really fast. Whoa. And so luckily they, um, like I had not luckily, my crew is smart mm-hmm. and had done their research and knew what they were getting into. And so um, I had a friend down below me that um, was able to slow me down and I was able to, if I needed to. And then I could also add friction to my repel device as I was going down. So it was able to slow me down. And having one of those types of repel devices on a repel that long is very, very important so that you don't lose control of your repel and your hands get too hot and you go too fast. Especially because it's an interesting thing. The longer you're on it to a point, Mm -hmm. then it starts getting faster and Mm -hmm. becomes more important to have more control. Yeah, for sure. If you could give like a paint a picture for people who not experienced something like that, you're basically hanging by a rope. You feel a hundred percent committed, right? Mm-hmm. And if whatever like the butterflies that you have in your stomach, um, or any kind of feeling that you have, the only way that you can cope with that is by using the skills and tactics that you've learned, right? to Mm -hmm. add friction or whatever it is. And then you have to rely on your partner below doing the thing that, you know, because they helped you um, to to actually really be helpful. And this is maybe one of the times in your life where like at work, it's nice when someone's helpful, but here. (laughs) No, in canyoneering, your team is definitely essential. Your life can depend on them at certain times in the canyon. And if you don't have a solid crew that knows what they're doing at all times, like it can be detrimental. I mean, there are beginner canyons where it may or may not matter. And then there's more intermediate canyons where you definitely have to have a solid crew. How does that re- affect your relationship to those people and people in general? Like- you can do a canyon in one day with a complete stranger. And when you leave the day, you have a best friend. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it could, it just totally changes. You totally bond. You put your life in the hands of someone that you don't know. And just the experience that you had that day, plus as you're hiking, you're just chatting and learning about them. And um, you just get, I don't know, it's not really like vulnerable, but you just open up, you know. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the day, you've got a really strong bond. It's pretty cool. Have you ever had that prior to like getting into canyoneering and stuff? Like those kinds of ways to build those relationships? Um. Motocross was a little that way, but there was a lot of male ego in that. <laughs> yeah. um, in canyoneering, even the, I mean, I do canyoneer with a lot of guys, and there is still a lot of male ego, but I do canyoneer with a lot of women too. And I mean, there's not so much, um, I guess, redneckishness. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone just kind of comes together and this love of the outdoors. And it's, yeah, it's different. It's good. Mm-hmm. I love the canyoneering community. It's cool. <laughs> And with, um, is there, is there an opportunity for, how would I say that, boldness or like bravado in a canyoneering experience? Because what I'm thinking is, is what you said about the male ego, um, is that sometimes you have in a climbing scenario, right, where like you have a rope gun or you have routes that are like, you know, bold where a fall could be like likely to injure you. 
or worse mm-hmm. or a variety of things like that. And you can see how it plays out in the group dynamics. Is there an opportunity to do like, like you, cause no one leads anything or like takes protection forward in a Canyon experience. And if ever, if you're going to commit to something, the whole group has to commit to it, right. To be able to exit the Canyon. Right. And so, so how does that, like that ego stuff play out in the canyoneering kind of experience? Um, or what does it look like to be bold in a canyoneering experience? I think then you're doing more kind of intermediate stuff or you're like exploring and actually out doing more um, first ascent kind of things mm-hmm. or doing things in like more harsh conditions like um, sometimes here when the snow is melting, you do get like class D canyons where you normally just have a class B canyon, mm-hmm. which is like, um, water would be flowing where normally you don't have water flowing, um, things like that. And so I think more bold people would maybe take those kind of extremes. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, that is kind of what I'm asking. Yeah. It's- and then there's also some canyons that are like RNX rated, mm-hmm. which means that there's, um, certain risk factors in those. And that's usually written in the beta or the information that you can find out about the canyons. And so, you know, going in that there's like this exponential risk. With the, those kinds of canyons that have that are rated for their like the risk factor. Is it like, do you find in canyoneering with people that you've met uh, or even just yourself that the natural progression is to assume or to play a little bit more with that risk factor? Um, or are those just like a type of challenging canyon? that some you know someone who likes to be play with boldness or whatever would seek out because in climbing right you could do like a 512 and it could be a 512 that's really safe um or you can go and do like a 512 and the protection that's really run out and all that other stuff and that calls like a different kind of um yeah personality type maybe or Mm -hmm. i do think it takes a different personality type to do the rnx canyons um I also think that as a general progression as a human, like you start at the easy stuff and you want to see what the, you know, the harder stuff is you want to push yourself. So you want to get exploring potholes and you want to get those different challenges um, and getting into like natural anchor setting and using sand trap anchors where you're using just like a bag of sand or like a fiddle stick where it's just like a pull on the rope that you pull out and, you know, just challenging yourself in those kind of ways. Like um, Scott's, I think like, is a rock pile anchors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those are cool. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> well, Scott's different because, I mean, dead man anchors, the rock pile anchors are normal, mm-hmm. but he's fiddle sticking off of those which is different and new and exciting. <laughs> I kind of like that. What's exciting about it? Um, You don't have to leave trash in the canyon. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you get um, anchors where somebody doesn't like the webbing on that anchor, so they'll add their own webbing to it, and then that next person doesn't feel comfortable with that. So instead of taking those two off, they add their other one, and you get like a rainbow of webbing and clutters up the canyon. And you get um, a lot of times rope grooves happen when there's bolts in canyons, and so you go and it'll start looking like a comb kind of because there's all these grooves in the rock especially here in the um soft desert sandstone i don't think it happens so much in like um california washington and colorado things seem to get more polished than they do get grooved i think yeah um and 
I I've seen that like the whole rainbow of tat here in the Alpine. Um, but I imagine it's a lot different in that kind of environment too, because things don't, things don't hide very well there in the sense that everything's all bushy and scrubby and you're like, Whoa, there's some tat that's been under the tree or whatever. But there it's like, everything's out and exposed and like, it's so clean there in terms of like the smoothness of the rock and all the, like a, uh, a log would be out of place in a highlight. Whereas here, a log would be the noise. So that creates a challenge in and of itself then if you don't, if you're using like these natural, natural anchors and stuff like that, because that's like a, um, cause it, when you have like tat or at least like in a climbing scenario, when you have chains, right, everything's just there. It's just like plug and play in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. But from my understanding or not my understanding, I have very little understanding about like the dead man anchors. Thank you. Um, but I heard something about like rock farming and then I went on a whole rabbit hole, like people collecting rocks as they go to be able to create dead men anchors in places that won't have rocks. And I was like, so is that really a thing where you like rock farm and you try to. Yeah. So I was in a Canyon in Capitol reef actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, so I did this Canyon called arch nemesis and I was one of the first like 50 people that got to do it because they knew a ranger that had found it so now it's pretty popular and a lot of people do it but back then it hadn't been done for a while and so we got to one of the middle rappels i want to say number three or four um and so after you pull your rope in a canyon you're committed you can't turn around and go back out you have to keep going down sometimes there will be an escape route in the middle but not usually. <laughs> and that was the case here. And so we get to that rappel and um, Josh had told me that the, it might be the case that we would have to rebuild this anchor because nobody had done the canyon yet that year. And so um, me and a couple other friends went down and we left part of our group up on top of the other one because we knew there might not be rocks down there. Uh-oh. And so, yeah, sure enough, we had to rebuild the anchor and we didn't have any rocks. And they threw one rock down and the first rock they threw down was a pretty big rock, but it was a really soft sandstone. Uh-huh. And so when it landed, it just totally like went into gravel. Like oh it my was gosh. so many pieces. And so I had to like, Hey, can you find like harder rocks that are <laughs> not sandstone and describe like the types of rocks for them to, to throw down. And then we had this one guy with us, my friend Frank, And he's kind of a bigger dude and he's newer to the canyoneering. He's more into like rock um, mountain bike riding and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, but his wife really loves canyoneering. And so um, he was going to go down on this anchor that he just watched us build. Right. Mm -hmm. And he was so (laughs) nervous. And so he had me and his wife stand on the rocks with (laughs) the, um, as a backup, even though two other people had gone down before him, um, <laughs> just to make sure that it wouldn't move. But yeah, wow. that's definitely a true thing. Um, yeah, dead men anchors, they, they're fun. See that, but that's an incredible experience to watch your husband. <laughs> like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Be like really <laughs> overwhelmed in that way. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and it's like it's such a loving moment too because i think you know like that you do feel really vulnerable 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> and it's funny because the bigger you are, <laughs> the more vulnerable yeah. you might feel in that way, I suppose. Huh? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, yeah, we had him on a backup and we stood on the anchor and it didn't move. It was bomber. But yeah, it's pretty, sometimes you're like, what am I doing here? Like, <laughs> what is it <laughs> because questioning your life decisions and then you're like well i'm not in la traffic right now so that's cool yeah, this, is, <laughs> this is nice because vis visually speaking like if you just go off of the the intuitive visuals that you see um oftentimes you might freak out right yeah because like, yeah, sure. like, even in climbing like you know you hang off of like dyneema and dyneema is very very thin kind of material but mm -hmm. like, you know, we always say it's like, oh, it's dental floss, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> and and in, in reality, like your, your mind's just like throwing out delusional fears, you know, the whole time. And you just get to like, uh, just be okay. Yeah. Just be okay with being okay with it. Embracing the suck, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it works. It's definitely a it can be unsafe if you get complacent but um it's definitely it's you know an adventure yeah which is that's i mean kind of why i started the podcast is to get stories of misadventure out there mm -hmm. so when people are doing adventures they're thinking more clearly yeah and using, they're risking more wisely <laughs> that's what you find is it seems to be really important that's why i really love your podcast and i also like reading about like you know, accident reports is macabre, masochistic as it might seem, but you, you realize that like, you really don't know what can actually, you know, go wrong. Right. And whatever your, your fears are, those really aren't always to be trusted. Cause like, it's weird. Like, you know, the, uh, the, the initial fear that you have is not always rational, like the intuitive fear, but also mm -hmm. if you have complacency, like, you know, you're calm about stuff. That's not always rational either. So you're kind of like oscillating between testing your fears and testing your assumptions in order to keep you safe, right? And I feel like, you know, facing your fear and going with it, like feeling that fear, I think is good because that keeps you on your toes mm -hmm. and that keeps you focused to what you're doing. Like you're going to check your anchor. You're going to check to make sure you're hooked in right. You're going to check to make sure your friends are hooked in right because you don't want them to fall. You know, um, that fear, I think, is good, it, and it helps keep you focused. Um, I think if I stop being scared when I get up to rappel or, like, feeling anxiety a little bit, I think that's probably when I'll have to stop because that means I'm complacent, and that's probably when I'll make mistakes. Were you surprised to find that that fear would be, your, your, um, would be something that would be a part of your life uh, throughout canyoneering? Because some people would look at somebody who do intense activities that require risk mitigation as somebody who does not have a high fear response. But I wouldn't, just like what you said, like you, you said it really well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've talked to people about it a lot, you know, and they're like, you're so badass. You're not scared at all. And I'm like, no, like I may just manage it well. But, you know, I do have that initial you know, I am scared. I do have that like 
oh my god i could fall at any moment (laughs) (laughs) so you're you've never gotten like ego pangs before you've created this like principle or this like understanding and value of fear um that you were afraid because in climbing I've, i've had that and like for me though i've resolved it and i've invited it it's actually like a friend right the, the fear and, mm-hmm. you know right. sometimes it's uninvited but i learn to sit with it but most of the time i want it to be there because it protects me more often than not yeah yeah i feel like it's a good thing yeah i was actually at um this place called horseshoe bend Mm-hmm. and I um, was going to go take a picture of my feet over the river. It's like this Colorado River, beautiful spot, but it's like a maybe 2,000 foot drop down to the river, and so I'm going to put my feet over, and I'm like crab crawling to put my feet over so mm-hmm. I can take a picture, and I have a friend with me who's not really a hiker, which is why we're on this hike, and she's like, what are you doing? Like, you do 300 foot repels all the time, and I'm like, I'm not hooked up to any ropes right now. Like I'm scared. (laughs) I'm this close to an edge. I'm going to be cautious. And she was happy to see that because she just thought like, you know, I'm out there, you know, totally full of all of this stuff. And so for her to see that was pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And um, you never get any like uh, negative. Do you ever get any negative self-talk though, revolving the fear or are you pretty, uh, have a pretty good relationship with that part of yourself. Um, more, my anxiety comes when it's like weather induced or like oh, other yeah. things. I've seen. I was in a flash flood one time that we talked about it in one of my episodes. Yeah. We had clients with us and stuff, and that was on a chance. It was supposed to be twenty percent chance of light rain that day, mm-hmm. and so I've really been known to either change plans completely or cancel them because of rain mm-hmm. um, a lot more so than also I think I learned from other people's tragedies and so unfortunately I've had some friends die Mm. and get hurt really bad in cannoneering and so I'm always just like the safety Nazi out there yeah so you respect that side of yourself Mm -hmm. it makes sense yeah yeah if I I see people doing stupid shit I just don't go with them anymore Mm mm-hmm I can't I don't want to be there on that trip you know and then when you were with people in a canyoneering setting um what are what are some common things that people feel very exposed do they do feel afraid because there's repelling um but is there like any specific kinds of obstacles that are usually pretty um intense that way (laughs) yeah I mean depending on the canyon you've got um some exposed hiking just to get there or to get out of the canyon. Um, so sometimes that can be really challenging. Sometimes you've got, you know, class four, class five climbing to get out or into a canyon. Um, and then sometimes you've got really cold potholes full of water, oh. or sometimes the potholes can be empty and you have to climb out of them. And so having that kind of knowledge is really important. Um, sometimes if you're in certain areas where the water's flowing, you'll have to, um, have knowledge of like hydraulics and things like that, like in Uray and I think Washington has a lot of those. Yeah. yeah Washington. I've like fervently been looking online, like rope wiki and stuff. Like where's, uh, where's some class B canyons? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, come on, give me some dry canyons, but no, they're all wet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they're beautiful though. <laughs> Yeah, Costa Rica has some really pretty classy canyons with warmer water. 
Mm-hmm. So that was a nice. Oh, that would be nice. That mm-hmm. wow. that would be like a like a lazy river, so but very intense. I mean, we still had like three mil wetsuits, but we weren't shivering the whole day. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Washington's a little more hardy, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, you definitely need to know what type of canyon you're getting into and um, the challenges that are involved before you get there. It's, if we just hit the rewind button really hard, what's canyoneering? <laughs> <laughs> so, canyoneering is a mix of hiking, climbing, rappelling, swimming, scrambling, I don't know, going Whoa. through a drainage down a canyon. That's wild. And where where you're at, or in like the the Colorado Plateau, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that are dry canyons. Most of the time. Most of the time. And yeah, we do get a lot of, I mean, a lot of the Zion canyons will get, have the potholes full of water, like Imlay and Heaps will usually have water in them. Um, they won't be flowing, but they will have water obstacles in them. And that's very unique to the environment that you're at, right? like the the type of canyons that you find or mm-hmm. is, is that because of all like the the soft rock the sandstone and stuff like that in relation to the rockies yeah yeah just the um the way the waters just carve through the napo sandstone and just carve these spectacular crevices or arteries i guess and they like yeah. and it's a lot of it's like what I think you mentioned this but it's like hiking with like um with obstacles yes hiking with obstacles so not only do you need ropes to get down certain drops like you'll you'll come to a cliff or whatever and have to repel but sometimes you have rocks that you have to climb over sometimes you have down climbs where you're just um climbing down certain things and then sometimes you're just hiking flat Sometimes you're in rivers. Sometimes you're on ridges. Wow. Usually you're in drainages. It seems like even more varied terrain than rock climbing in a lot of ways. I think so. That's what more intrigued me about canyoneering than climbing. It's very adventurous. And like, I like how it, for me, I, I got into, I really, I liked hiking. Um, and then I found that I liked, you know, I liked running a little more. Um, but only trail running because running by itself sucked i just found out it was so confusing like even when you when i get into all these things because i when i've gotten to like running i'm like oh this i've always hated running why would i like this and i realized that oh no you could like move fast enough so you don't have to backpack but you just like hike all day and and there's like all (laughs) these little like nuances in there and and that's where my favorite thing about hiking is is when there's obstacles so I can be slow and I can think a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where canyoneering just really hit it for me because it just seems like, you know, you're trying to get from point A to point B. And along the way, you have a variety of, of obstacles that the landscape provides you. Mm-hmm. And then you have to rely on your, like, your technical ability with, um, with rope to descend the vertical stuff with the assistance of, of friends. And mm-hmm. then your body to get through like all the other kinds of obstacles. Yeah. That's just, and, and it's like what, kind of what you said is like all the, the physical part where you're using your body 
is mm -hmm. in like, sh correct me if I'm wrong, shorter spurts throughout the whole thing. Because if I climbing, I'm doing like this whole vertical thing and I'm really intense in this little like vertical, you know, uh, column. But with you, it's like, you know, move a little bit, do some like challenging physical problem, move challenging physical problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you might be stemming for 20 feet, 30 feet, depending on the canyon. Some canyons like four hours, whatever. Oh, <laughs> oh. You know, and then and then you're, you know, just hiking flat and then you might swim for a little bit and then you have a rappel and, then, you know, whatever. Oh. Yeah, it changes a lot. And yeah, depending on the canyon and the train you're in, it all changes too. So. In and the season. <laughs> In the area that you're at and like with the, the kinds of canyons, I know there's a lot, but that are available, what are like some kinds of styles, like not wet or dry, but like what kinds of like um, obstacles or styles of movement do you find in these kinds of canyons? Like I know there's stemming, but is there other kinds of things? Yeah, um, the potholes, like I've said, where sometimes they can be either full of water and you're just swimming across them and then, then you can get out easy. Mm -hmm. Or if they're like at a certain level and you can't reach the bottom mm -hmm. to be able to get out or if they're like no water in them at all. Whoa. And then you have to like either use hooks or other certain types of technical devices and ascenders to be able to get out. Wow. Um, so those can change. And then, um, yeah, just scrambling over rocks, stemming, repelling. Mm -hmm. Um, through the scrambling and um, stemming, do you do you assume a certain level of risk within those? I imagine the the scrambling isn't like prolonged over a vertical period, but it can depend on the canyon. Um, there's one like Santhrax has a pretty hard climb in the middle of it, the crux of it, which is what makes it an X canyon. Oh. And then there are some canyons like in North Wash area where you're stemming high for a long period of time, mm -hmm. and so those also make that a little more challenging because if you slip you're falling like 30 feet in a really narrow slot oh wow um and those can be more scary and then also like shenanigans um the lower the very end section like the lower section is really really narrow mm -hmm. so if you're a certain like width like oh yeah like, my helmet couldn't fit through one way. My butt actually got stuck and I had to have <laughs> friends like lift me up and like maneuver me over oh. like 20 feet. But we had friends with us on that hike that were, you know, at the higher weight section. And mm -hmm. so they were stemming above us. And he said that that presented a totally different challenge than being low because, you know, if he did fall, he's not going to make it to the bottom mm -hmm. of the canyon. He's just going to be stuck in there somewhere. Oh. And then, you know, search and rescue is going to have to come and or we're going to have to, like, try to hoist him out somehow. Mm -hmm. And so that can be um, definitely a challenge and more. Yeah, more dangerous. Um, so you definitely want to know, especially with those skinny canyons, what you're getting into and what your body's capable of, because they are physically demanding and you get tired really easy. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> but if you don't have the strength to stem like that for four hours. Um don't get in there yeah those sure. are one of those things where if you commit to there's a certain point to where there's like no mm -hmm. point of return on committing right yeah you can't return you're just gonna have to like rest and get your energy until you can and then there's also some you know where it requires certain pothole decisions and if you don't know how to get out of those potholes you're going to be stuck 
like what kind of pothole decisions if you could um so some of them like there's neon if the pothole is at a certain level like if it's full of water like when i went through it's super easy so you mm -hmm. just like swim across and you can get out but if it's at a medium level um if it's empty you can do like a partner boost so you can stand on somebody's shoulder and get out and then you can lower rope and everyone else can ascend oh cool um, but if it's kind of a mid-level, you can't do that. And so you have to figure out a way where you have to, like, do a floating, like, mount out of the thing. But you can't really, like, reach the lip from the level. Um, so in those kind of certain circumstances, you can actually, like, your backpacks float. Mm -hmm. And so you can stand on two backpacks. And that can kind of get you high enough <laughs> to be able to, like, beach well out of the pothole. Um, so there's certain techniques and there's classes that you can take from certain um some people mm -hmm. in the area some of the outfitters so that you have the skills before you get there by yourself how far mm -hmm. out or do you think you are at that point in terms of hours um when you're at that pothole in the neon canyon oh like i mean you're at least six hours into the day oh usually people will usually people do neon as a backpack trip and they'll combine it with a couple others because the hike into there is at least three ish hours mm -hmm. and then um but once you get there you're like at the escalani river and there's a couple other canyons yeah. you can do so people will normally combine it but yeah i mean that's definitely a point to consider because it makes search and rescue like a lot more difficult when you're that far out there yeah and that's what that happens <laughs> <laughs> and that's where it's like these are one of some of the very rare things that we have in our in our life where when you commit to them you like you really do you know you commit to them and yeah the consequences are are very real yep you know and even very with real. the search and rescue like um i'm often no i'm not surprised but um they do their best too but it's like a long time to get help with search and rescue yeah. Even yeah, they can't get there in an hour or two. Sometimes it takes several hours. And sometimes if you have internal bleeding, you don't have that long. Mm -hmm. Which is sad, but it's realistic. <laughs> do, do you have, um, is there a lot of different, or would you often have yourself um, in scenarios where you're using like the assistance of a partner in order to get through obstacles? Like you said, the partner lifts. I saw some things where people like, will lower people down mm -hmm. little sections is there is there like is that something you rarely do or do you find yourself doing that quite often um i mean it depends on the canyon for depends sure but canyon, it, yeah. it happens often oh wow that's really cool then yeah and there's a lot of times too where like um i'll usually be like it's called the meat anchor <laughs> and <laughs> and it'll usually be like on shorter rappels or whatever but um It'll be something like I can down climb, but the other people don't feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just hook the harness to me in a way. And then I like put myself in an area where like, I'm not going to get pulled off of the cliff. Yeah. And then they just basically repel off of me. And then I down climb down after. I've scared some people um, inadvertently on accident, but I was completely <laughs> safe um i was uh repelling or i was belaying them right from the from the top and i just like led a pitch in the alpine and it was just super easy climbing low fifth class and i like there's a, a a notch in between these huge boulders that are as tall as me 
and I just climb up and over the boulders and then I sit and the ropes running straight through the notch and I just do a hip belay. Yeah. And, and I'm hip belaying them up and we're on the Alpine ATCs, <laughs> all these things. And they're like, what are you doing? And I'm not connected yeah. to anything. And I'm like, listen, if you were to, I can't get sucked through the notch in the rock. You're completely fine. Like, and that's where I go back to like, you learn that there's a, especially as, as like um, the, the guy that you work with, right. As an engineer. Um, and if you understand like physics, right. This is so empowering for me from like a, a kid who hated science and didn't give a shit about physics. And now it's like <laughs> physics are probably yeah. one of the most important things that I could learn. Um, Cause if you understand at least like physics, like there's, you, you can understand objective reality and you can like mitigate risk objectively yep <laughs> which is really gratifying with a sand trap too i mean that's basically a tarp full of sand that you're repelling off of <laughs> but the way that you put it like it's physics and it doesn't move mm-hmm. and you usually have a backup person when the first person goes so if it does move you put more sand in it and then the next person goes and if it moves you put more sand in it yeah. but usually that doesn't happen because of the way that you angle it and where you put them and then you're able to just pull everything down with you the tarp empties all of its sand and there's nothing left in the canyon it's really cool just, and i just think that see like like a hundred percent my the nerdiest like dad me comes out where it's like okay science was boring for me in school for whatever reason but you like get me really scared and nervous and you're like this is gonna work and i'm like no it's not that does not look like it's gonna work the only thing that's gonna get you through it is experiencing it and then learning that there's objective reality and there's a way to discern what is true and what's not and this is the practice because you're not gonna die like yeah But, and again, we go out and practice this stuff and, you know, do it a few times before we like go out in the field and, you know, or take classes to learn how to do it. But um, I've watched people like go down on the sand trap and then pull it afterwards. And it's just really cool to see like from the top, all of the sand deploy and like everything go flawlessly. I've never really seen neat. that before. I got to I'm going to have to check out a video of that now. Yeah. I wonder if we put one online. Oh, We'll have to. I'm going to have a practice day soon, so we'll do one. What percentage of your, um, I guess, of your free time, right, that you spend canyoning and all these other things, what percentage of that time is spent, like, practicing skills and, and, and different tactics, like rope work and stuff? Um, so I started this thing with my friends. We call it um, Skills Day or Not Night. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely in the winter times in Kanab, you know, you get like socially weird and the days are short and you just want to, you know, hang out with your friends and stuff. And you're not out canyoneering because it's too cold and stuff. And so we had, um, we would have people over once a month, usually in the wintertime, just to practice knots and just keep fresh on skills. And then um, I try to do at least three times a year, I try to do a skills day where we go out and um, to a cliff and actually practice those kinds of things. And like one day we might do um, the sand traps. One day we might do potholes one day. We, and we always practice like ascending and passing knots. And I always just let all my friends know like, Hey, we're doing it this day. Um, and it's usually a pretty, pretty good thing. We have a potluck after we didn't do it um, in 2020. Actually we had one in 2020 right before COVID 
close everything down. Oh, but I'm thinking about having another one here coming up soon because I think we really need it. Yeah. That's pretty fun. Is it is it like one of your one of your favorite ways to socialize too? Yeah. And that yeah, for sure. Do do you spend this might be a personal question and it's okay if you don't want to talk about it, but like how much of your time do you spend socializing? Do you spend canyoneering as your form of socializing? I try to spend most of my socializing time canyoneering. Yeah. I do spend a lot of time canyoneering. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I'm either like canyoneering, sometimes hiking, or with my grandkids. That's as like you know, (laughs) growing up and stuff like that. I just don't. I'd kick the dirt and like work, um, come home tired. Like that's like you know, weekend comes, you relax, get ready, do it all over again, and like hanging out with friends. I was always like, I don't like not to like in a downer way and I appreciate this now because I spend so much of my time doing and it's nice to not and to spend time relaxing with friends but like when you didn't when you don't have this like passion or this thing that everything seems to revolve around um, I just didn't it's hard for me to spend time with people like that like not people like that but people in that way where we're like we're either like climbing or going for a run or, you know, adventuring, yeah. hiking and like, and that's become my life to the point to where like, if it were my way, if my family were into, we're, we're doing some of the stuff, we might be doing like, you know, some climbing and like, oh wait, skiing on Christmas, right? Climbing for 4th of July, which I've been trying to rope them into that. And it's like, well, right. I was like, oh, I, I check with my girlfriend a lot. I'm like, you know, or our dates are always rock climbing and running and then and hiking. <laughs> You're all right with that. Right. And it's because I've never had relationships that were not just a intimate relationship, but a relationship with friends and family that revolved around mutual interests. And that's been a very different point in my life in the last like five years to where if I'm going to go hang out with a buddy who's like really into martial arts, like we hang out consistently to improve our martial arts, but like, I really connect with that person when, when I'm doing that. And it's like, right. You know, and when you want to like, um, party really hard. Cause I think about this when I was a kid and I remember adults used to party like really hard sometimes. And that wasn't like always the most comfortable thing as a kid. And as an adult, I think about that a lot because like my late nights are like Alpine starts to go climbing and like all of these things, same thing. You know, sometimes I'm late, which I feel bad and I try to not do that because I'm (laughs) same thing, too, is maybe a dad who stays out a little too long. And I'm like trying to reconcile all those things. But um, I just love having these opportunities to connect with people like that and and in that in that way, you know, and in a positive way that like helps me and hopefully might make me a better father and a better person and all that other stuff. A little more. Right. I mean, I think that he'll see what you're doing and, you know, he'll see you're not at the party, you know, bars, yeah. you're not hanging out, you're doing things and you invite him along with you and he'll get mm-hmm. into it. Like it took my daughter years, but, um, she loves the outdoors now. Yeah. It's For like sure. my son, it becomes a mixed relationship with it, but it's often that the type two fun with him. Cause I've even had, where I take him out. He's like, oh, I don't want to go. I want to stay home. And I'm like, Oh, I feel a little bad about this. And then afterwards, he's like telling his teachers like, oh, yeah, we got to go in the, you know, the lava, the lava tubes and see all the lava flows and all these other things. And like, I've even caught like he was drawing one day and I'm like, 
what are you drawing on your water bottle? He's like, oh, I'm drawing mountains on it. And I'm like, why are you doing that? He's like, oh, don't you know? And I'm like, what? They're my, my favorite. And he even like came home one day and he's oh, like, had to write what courage was. And he drew Mount St. Helens. And then it's him and his dad. And he's like, courage is my, or me getting to the top with my dad or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's really cool, man. That is awesome. Yeah. And those are going to be things like I look back at memories with my dad grown up, you know, and they're my favorite. Like, I love that he exposed me to the outdoors so young. So, That's so cool. You can't go wrong with that. I don't think. Yeah. Well, thanks for the reassurance. I, I really do appreciate that. It's hard sometimes <laughs> when you're looking from the other, you know, not in hindsight, but as they grow older, you know, it's a little easier. Yeah. It gets hard when they're teenagers, but then they have grandkids and that's the best i'm telling you and you might not be able to pitch it right now but oh they were so awesome i watch how my son and my mom interact and i'm just so like oh i can't wait i can't <laughs> yeah i'm gonna because like especially with me because i do crazy like i'll take them climbing and stuff i'll get is their dad scared I'm sure. yeah that's me like i can't wait to get my grandkids out there where can people learn more about you um, so mostly on Facebook, it's Cheryl's Rocks Jocelyn on Facebook or the Canyons Are Calling podcast. And where can they check out your podcast? Um, pretty much anywhere the podcasts can be played, I think. Sweet. If I'm not on there, they can email me at the Canyons Are Calling at gmail.com and let me know so that I can get on to there because right. I'm still pretty new at it and I'm not sure that I'm everywhere. <laughs> and yeah i'm really enjoying this podcast and it is so cool yeah i've got some exciting episodes coming up so yeah i can't wait for for scott sweeney that's gonna so be yeah Ew, i think i might finish it tomorrow so. oh really okay cool well yeah. i'll be looking forward to it thank you so much Rose. Yeah. you're welcome have a great night all right yeah you too bye Later. Woo! Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. Cheryl's is a fascinating woman with um, an interesting story, especially coming out, you know, coming from um, having like an abusive relationship with drugs and emerging from that and eventually finding herself immersed in this, you know, life of canyoning or canyoneering you know, solving problems, moving through obstacles out in the wilds of southern and central Utah. And I think it's beautiful. You know, she's really figuring herself out and as a means of play. And I think play is really important, you know. There's a lot of lessons in our own lives that are waiting for us to be discovered. And I think it's, you know, uniquely your own shit to figure out right um but playing and putting yourself out there making yourself vulnerable or challenging yourself um in whatever way is meaningful or inspiring to you is you know a reliable way for me to be able to get those like lessons and joy and and stretch my highs and lows to really exciting levels so it's amazing to be able to connect with someone else who found like another activity, another that is a reason to explore these beautiful places and uh, push yourself and relax and enjoy being with other people. The whole combination. 
Um, if you want to learn more about Cheryl's, you can find her on um, Instagram, the Canyons Are Calling, and on all podcasting platforms. Check out her awesome podcast, The Canyons Are Calling, um, on Spotify and all podcasting platforms. You can also find links to all of that and do um, some videos of some of the canyons she mentioned on my website, becominghumanpodcast.com. Um, or you can find them in the show notes. If you'd like to support my podcast, you can head over to becominghumanpodcast.com, leave a comment. Uh, you can rate me or rate the podcast. <laughs> it's only fans. <laughs> you can rate the podcast on uh, iTunes. It really helps out. Uh, and I'm going to play you out with a song by Aesop Rock and Homeboy Sandman called Ask Anyone. It's a beautiful tribute to MF Doom. And if you guys don't know who MF Doom is, it's worth checking out. He was an excellent hip-hop artist. Uh, He passed away uh, recently, but he's got a beautiful body of work. Anyways, without any further ado, here's Aesop Rock and Homeboy Sandman. Enjoy your spring, y'all. I took it to the head and heart You were back as metal face and threatening my pearl white Acura from the second bar Barfing up a master classic Charismatic disrespect and trash talk Mask on mac and cheese Timberlands Sold the first apple seed CDs at your brownie show While you were saying something up remember like the Alamo I was yelling every word and never late And when you finally played Hey, I felt the venue levitate Ask anyone L out of upstate Come to learn a Sony phase one of the floodgates Doomsday glue and true grit to the baseline And made himself a hero and a villain at the same time Back in 94 you had that line about the Nikes on the wire I'd always see these Nikes on the wire When I was driving through a neighborhood Somebody said you stayed in Convinced I'd found the actual inspiration For the record I was not even close to the right neighborhood Even when the heart is pure the brain is mush Thank you for the stories and the fuck you to the normies Bruin said we lost our Jordan I would sprinkle in some Voorhees in a grave Breeze I have this memory of me and you Rapping me grinder to each other at a BBQ and BK Got the same memory with a couple other people too Trading doom lines that's what people do You were always kind of me in person I tried to play cool but I was always kind of nervous Yeah. Super Villano, Eleno, chopping records that my parents listen to. Doom was on a mission to remind you that the magic is what matters. But where'd he find that banner? Where'd he find them patterns? He ain't had no manners. My favorite villain is the drop on Victor Vaughn. But every time I hit a great day intro, I'ma sing along and catch me sleeping on the GMOs. Them lessons on point. We share a brother and carry from the question mark joint. Super villain in the function and his peoples never fall. Thanks for introducing us to John Robinson and Star. And the era full of rarefied jewels And making use of airtime for making bad headlines cool Y'all, being crazy taste guts Masa Alizars had a rep for being nuts Extra special words and a special herb still lingers My pantheon is burdened mingus, prints and metal fingers Larger than life, he had his own nikes I'm a clear weather brand dude, but dag don't Food was the anagram. Fresh put me on, I proceed to put on anyone that was family. And 
Every particle, genuine article. Okay, you stiffed a few promoters who thought they booked a man under the mask, but they could never tell for certain. Walking the walk while talking in third person. He wore a mask so the charge won't grab. On a rooftop with a large stone slab. Seen where the industry was going and had to go, Nads to go, Nah. Thanks. A bar is not a measure. A music doom is doing this, a unit of buried treasure. No one ever done it better. So I'ma keep my computer on caps lock forever. forever.